Outcast is proud to be the first podcast novel listed at podcalgary.org. Welcome to Outcast, Episode 8. Outcast is a podcast-only novel, written and read by Chris Vitzman. This novel contains mature subject matter, some language, and a lot of violence. So listener discretion is strongly advised. Okay, okay, I know. I said I wasn't going to take so bloody long in between episodes, and again, here I am, what, three, four weeks later, and finally getting this thing going. I do want to apologize for taking so long. My life has been an absolute hell these past few weeks, but that's all cleared off now. we got brighter days ahead of us. Things are starting to look good. So now I can finally sit down. I can get back to doing what I love, which is recording podcasting, writing, all that good stuff that makes life worth living, right? And okay, you know, one thing I will admit was I was hoping that during this time away, during this brief hiatus of mine, you know, maybe a little bit of feedback would start dropping in. And actually one piece of feedback did drop in, and it came through my voicemail line at 206-666-2912. So go ahead and take a listen. Why it is that he's doing the things that he's doing, or what he what he's thinking at the time, you know, the personal conflict he's going through, you know, really gives us the idea of like we're standing right there next to him and we're seeing what's happening and we can feel what it is that he's feeling, see what he's seeing, etc., etc. So to say you're doing a great job, uh, keep up the great work, and can't wait for the next chapter. Mark Snowball, and I'll talk to you later. You know, I have to admit, I've never really had my writing critiqued or commented on in all the years I actually have been writing. And to hear something like that, as well as being one hell of a stroke to the ego, it also tells me that maybe I'm doing something right. So Marcus, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Thank you so much for those kind words. And now with that being said, nothing left to do except give you the next episode of Outcast. Chapter 8 Next morning, 
the place was heavy with the combined scent of tokia leaves and sickness. The first thing I did when I opened my eyes was to look towards where the cougar was sleeping to make sure she hadn't thrown up during the night. It didn't look like she had, and for that I was grateful. Whatever I'd done the night before seemed to be working. She began to stir, and the first thing that came out of her mouth was a low, painful moan. She rolled to her side and gripped her abdomen tightly, whimpering softly. Her body must have gone through hell the day before for her muscles to be that painful. It only made me feel worse that, when I'd first found her, I'd actually considered just leaving her out there to die. Well, that was until she opened her eyes and saw me looking at her. I wasn't sure if it was anger, fear, or the shock of realizing she was indoors, but she sprang to her feet and sunk into a fighting pose in a move so fluid it was poetry. Now, I wasn't trying to be chauvinistic or arrogant, but I didn't bother to stand. Instead, I merely sat up, stretched, and yawned. Well, good morning to you, too, I said finally. Where am I? she demanded. Why am I here? She bared her fangs in a snarl and ran her tongue over her lips slowly. <laughs> Once she did that, her savagery seemed to deflate as she tasted what was left of the tokia leaf paste I'd put on there the night before. What is this? Well, to answer your questions in order, I said, you're in my dwelling, I took you in last night because you were sick, and what you just tasted there is part of what you'll need if you want to be cured. Cured? she asked. Cured of what? Theris fever, I replied. You threw up green bile last night. That's the first stage of the disease. It gets worse from there. I explained the different phases of the fever's progression, and her stance seemed to relax a little. I motioned over to the bucket that held the concoction she would have to drink, but she never took those amber eyes off me. In fact, they narrowed with suspicion. Why should I believe you? she countered. How do I know that's not some kind of drug you used last night to... Okay, you know what? Fine. I got to my feet, and instead of confronting her, I walked over to where my shoes were and started putting them on. I then grabbed my knapsack and coat and moved towards the door. Where are you going? she demanded. Out, I said. I've got better things to do today than argue with you. If you want to leave, that's your business. But if you do, just make sure I never see you again. Oh, I'm so scared, she said, her tone one of mock fear. You think you can take me, kid? Hmm? You think you're so tough? I merely walked to the door and paused before opening it. No, I simply said. I just don't want to bury anyone else if that's alright with you. And if you leave, you'll die. Of course, if I do happen across your corpse, I'll be glad to bury it next to where I buried those children. And at this, her fighting stance dropped. I could still see the defiance in her eyes, but I also noticed the growing fear behind them. Maybe I should have said something to calm her. Maybe. But by then I was so fed up with her attitude that I merely sighed and headed out the door. The main road was a couple of kilometers away from my dwelling, and it gave me a lot of time to think as I made my way there. Why? Why did I even bother to help her out? 
Grandfather had always taught me to be the better man, but really, was being the better man worth putting up with attitudes like hers? I wasn't looking for any, you know, oh my hero lines or anything like that, but a simple thanks for saving my life would have been nice. One nice thing about long walks is, by the time they're nearly done, any tension or hot emotions you'd felt at the start of it usually faded by the time you reach your destination. And it was no different for me. By the time I could see the main road, I'd reasoned out just why I'd ignored my first impulse to leave her and actually try to help that cougar. I'd already failed to save three innocent children from a fate they didn't deserve. So with her, maybe I was trying to redeem myself. Either that, or I was somehow trying to prove that I wasn't like all those other exiles in that warehouse, and was actually willing to help someone in trouble. Whatever the reason, the more I walked, the better I felt about what I did. The highway I'd walked to was a four-lane road that connected the clan lands to Kerala City. Many of the skimmers that coursed down this road went in excess of 200 kilometers an hour, and it amazed me there weren't more accidents. Of course, the sides of the highway were lined with governors, which could regulate the road's maximum allowable speeds by communicating with a skimmer's onboard computer. This kept roads like this virtually free of accidents, though once in a while you'd hear of some grisly high-speed crash and catch a glimpse of the grease stain that was once a person. I pulled out my ID card and tapped on it a few times, accessing the Kerala City Transit System. One of the benefits of being a citizen of the city was the use of transit on demand. Municipal taxes paid for the upkeep of the system, so as long as you were considered a citizen of the city, you could ride for free. I found the command key to summon one of these transports and pressed it. After a few moments, the card informed me that a skimmer had indeed received my request and would be there in about ten minutes. Given the time of day, it was a good bet the transport would be empty, which was a relief. I'd only been in exile for a few days, I figured my face was still pretty recognizable. All it would take would be for a clansman to be on that transport and recognize me. Then the cougar would have to fend for herself. Sure enough, ten minutes later the transport showed up and it was thankfully empty. I boarded it and input my destination as the Kerala City Port Authority. Of all the places Silas had listed as potential job sites, this one seemed the most intriguing as well as the most anonymous. Servicing freighters both on water and from space, the Port Authority was a never-ending cycle of work, constantly transferring cargo to and from the many different ships that docked there. With my enhanced strength, I was sure I could get a job there. Though a lot of the work was done with machinery, there was still a lot of physical work that couldn't be done by machine. Granted, that kind of work wouldn't be the most glamorous or intellectually challenging, but if the pay was right, who really cared? The transit skimmer entered the city and was starting to make the odd stop to pick up a new passenger. I held my breath each time, wondering with each new arrival if they'd recognize me. And each time they didn't, I let out a small sigh of relief and tried my best to just enjoy the ride. We wove through some of the residential areas on the outskirts of the city, and I remember gazing out at some of the homes I passed by. In each one I caught a brief glimpse of families engaged in different activities be it from playing together or sitting on the porch and enjoying the warm day. What they all seemed to have in common was the fact that they were all together. 
Each house I passed showed indications that a happy family lived there, with parents, siblings, or other relatives all living together, steadfast in their bonds as families. It brought a small smile to my muzzle, and a tightness in my chest as I thought about my family and what they'd done to me. I thought about my little declaration the night I'd buried those kittens, but how I vowed to never seek my honor. In the heat of the moment it had sounded and felt right, but after watching all those houses I began to realize what else I'd be giving up if I saw that oath through. I'd never again see Mother's smiling face, nor would I ever play with all my brothers and sisters. I'd never again hear Grandfather's voice as he told story after story of how things were when he was my age. I'd be defiant in my stance against clan dogma, but such an oath could cost me, oh, so much more. After nearly an hour of stop-and-go travel, the skimmer finally came to a stop just by the main security office of the Port Authority. I quickly got out of my seat and exited the vehicle, and I then took a moment to gaze at what lay beyond the security fence. From where I was I couldn't see much, save for several rows of cargo containers and a few different vehicles milling about. I was still far enough away from the docks themselves to actually see any water, though I could see the immense cranes towering in the distance like a row of alien harvesters, ready to strip any incoming vessel of their cargo, only to replace it with another. The air was suddenly filled with a thunderous roar, and off to the right I saw a rather large freighter emerge from what looked to be a hangar. Six engines glowed hot as the rather large ship slowly rose into the air, and soon out of sight. I marveled to think that in a matter of minutes, that ship would be hurtling through space, heading for some distant planet I could only visit in my dreams. <laughs> there was no doubt about it. This most certainly was the place for me. I headed towards the security building, pulling out my ID card as I did so. It wasn't until I stepped inside that the realization of what I was about to do hit me. I looked at my ID card, then up at the person working the desk a few feet away. If this card was as good as Silas said it was, there would be no problems. However, with my very life being on the line, one could well understand my growing doubt. Can I help you, lad? I looked up to see the worker staring right at me. He may have been a cheetah, and physically smaller than most in my lineage, but he still looked ten feet tall to me. I wondered momentarily just how long he'd been watching me but then I decided I just didn't want to know. My ears were warm with embarrassment as I approached the desk. I'm... I'm looking for work, I said. I put my card on the desk and tensed as the cheetah took it. He placed it face up on a pad of some sort that was hooked to his hypernet terminal and tapped a few keys. The pad began to glow faintly, and I figured it must have been a card reader of some sort. Hmm, he said. Kane, eh? I nodded. Okay, Mr. Kane. Everything's in order here. If you'll just head for the gate, you'll be met by one of our security personnel, and she'll escort you to the dockmaster's office. He returned my card to me, and I nodded before heading towards the door. Once outside, I breathed a rather huge sigh of relief. It worked. The damn thing actually worked. 
It hadn't been Dallin the Exile who'd made it past the security checkpoint. It had been Darian Kane, someone who really only existed in the virtual world. I shivered at how liberating it felt, as though a small part of the stigma of being in exile had finally been lifted off my shoulders. I walked proudly towards the security gate and was met by a rather husky-looking, but no less feminine, Black Panther. For a moment I hesitated again, given my recent experiences with Panthers was somewhat less than friendly. Thankfully, her facial markings weren't those of a Rondoki, so again I felt relieved. Right this way, she said. I passed through the open gate and we walked side by side towards a small building off to the side of the yard. It was perched on a bit of a rise, so whoever was there could theoretically oversee any yard operations. Here we are, she said. She punched in a security code on the door, and a moment later I heard the click of the lock disengaging. Right this way. She pulled the door open and we stepped inside. We walked down a rather narrow hallway, past several closed doors, until we arrived at one that said, Ultras Barkov, Dockmaster. While I paused for half a heartbeat, my panther escort didn't miss a step as she opened the door and walked inside. I was quick to follow. Mr. Barkav, I heard her say. I looked around the office but couldn't see anyone. Right up until I saw one very large white tiger seemingly rise up from behind a filing cabinet. My eyes went wide. As intimidating as that security worker had been earlier, this guy was ten times that. Gods, his arms were the size of my thighs. Morning, Chariah, the white tiger said. His voice was thick with a Lakayan accent, which was no real surprise. After the Civil War, Lakayans all but flocked to Chanteau, looking to rebuild their lives in some way. With their country having relied mostly on imported goods for their economy, Working around dockyards and spaceports were almost second nature to any Lakaian. And how can I help you today? Got a new one here for you, she replied, nodding towards me. I stepped up, unable to take my eyes off this titanic yet jovial white tiger. He's already past security. Was he? he said. Those gray eyes suddenly locked on me, and I thought I was going to melt on the spot. Those eyes looked like they'd seen hundreds of new recruits like me pass through this office. And in that handful of heartbeats, I was sure he knew everything about me. I began to tense, ready to break away from this place at a moment's notice. What's your name, lad? he asked. Darian Kane, sir, I replied, trying to sound confident, but probably failing miserably. Kane, eh? He seemed to scan me again with those eyes of his. God's lad, you only just come of age, haven't you? A few months ago, yes. And why are you looking to work here? He asked. This here's no place for someone to be cutting their teeth in the real world. His eyes narrowed in suspicion. Why are you coming here? He asked. My... My parents, they... I? I sighed. They were killed just after I came of age, I said. I... I had to move out of our apartment because I couldn't pay the rent. I had to sell everything I had just to settle what they owed. I slumped my shoulders. 
Now the money's gone and I need a job. I figured this would be the best place to start. Maybe I'd overestimated the tiger's power of perception, because I swear I actually saw his entire body seem to droop as I told my little story. Maybe I'd laid it on a little thick, but in truth I didn't want to risk losing this opportunity. Your card, Lud. His voice had gone quite flat as I handed him my ID card. Like the cheetah before, he placed the card on a reader pad and punched a few keys on his terminal. I knows what it's like, losing someone important to you, he said as he reviewed my information. It's a feeling you don't soon forget. After a few more moments, he took the card off the scanner and handed it back to me. Be here tomorrow morning by 0630, he said. You get your physical then, and if you pass it, you're going to work. Thank you, I said. I felt the relief wash over me as I was escorted out of the dockmaster's office and eventually found myself en route back to the security building. Ultra sometimes comes across as a bit harsh, said the panther as we walked. But with all the injury claims and fatalities... Whoa, whoa, I said. Fatalities? Granted, I figured there were some risks involved in working the docks, but that she had said fatalities, as in plural of fatality... That was a bit more risk than I'd anticipated. It's usually an accident, she said. Or another damned exile trying to use this place as a suicide factory. You know, I once saw an exile walk out onto the tarmac just as a freighter was taking off. The blast from the engines cooked him in a second. I stopped. I wasn't sure what shocked me more. The knowledge that some exile had taken their own life in such a bizarre way or that Shariah was passing the story off as easily as talking about the weather. I... I take it you don't have much time for exiles? I asked. She shook her head. They've caused me way too many sleepless nights, she said. Nearly every report I have to file with the police or the coroner's office usually involves one of those damned exiles. How do they get in? I asked. Someone out there supplying them with fake ID cards, Shariah replied. I'd like to meet whoever's doing it and show them how much of a hell they've made my life. I was fast beginning to wonder if my two non-clan panther friends, Max and Risha, were the only two decent members of that particular lineage. Shariah's little comment, to be honest, stung like a slap across the face. What kind of a hell her life had become? Did she have any idea of what an exile went through day to day? At least she still had things like, oh, friends, a roof over her head, and the comfort of knowing she could move about without constantly looking over her shoulder. I kept my mouth shut as we finally made it to the gate. I thanked her cordially, and as she smiled back at me warmly, I remember having to stifle a growl. I also remember hearing the lyrics of an ancient Terran song playing through my head as I watched her return to her post just a few meters inside the fence and I knew those same lyrics would come up every time I thought of her. She ain't pretty. She just looks that way. I spent the next couple of hours in Corella's market area, moving from store to store and looking for supplies for the dwelling. With a job now secured, that 100 credits I'd gotten from the Foundation didn't seem as important as it had before and I really didn't feel like going to junk town for supper, so I figured I'd just purchase a type of home-cooked meal, such as it was.
The lack of any kind of cold storage tended to limit my choices in terms of what I could buy to eat. Anything remotely perishable would have to be eaten within a day or two lest it turn, so frozen foods were out. I got a hold of some camp meals, which, for all the snide comments one hears about them, were far better than a handful of half-ripened berries. They were a variant of combat rations, and contained their own self-heating device inside the packaging. Just press a button, wait five minutes, and dig in. I must have caught a sale that day. I managed to purchase a week's worth of them, and still managed to get a few other necessities. A second seal mat two blankets, toothbrushes, toothpaste, and even a few candles. By the time it was done, I still had about 30 credits left. Not bad, considering all I'd bought. I had to admit that the second mat, along with the two blankets, had been more of an impulse buy than anything. While I was sure that cougar would be long gone by the time I returned to my dwelling, I didn't want to be caught unprepared should I be wrong. If nothing else, the two blankets would ward off any cold nights, should the weather take a turn for the worse. After all, it was still spring, and springtime weather in Chantel was anything but predictable. I had just taken out my ID card to summon a transit skimmer when I noticed a flashing icon on it. I pressed it, and it opened up a text message from an unknown source. It didn't really say much, just a street address and what looked like a timestamp. I shook my head. This ID card was really starting to freak me out, as though it was some kind of mystery game that I had to solve. I summoned the transit skimmer, and instead of programming in a destination near my dwelling, I entered the coordinates of the address in the card. Whatever prompted the card to execute that text file, I figured had something to do with my getting a job. I could only conclude that the foundation, or someone linked to them, had something to do with that address and the timestamp, which must have been a deadline. Luckily, I managed to arrive at the destination well inside of the posted time, and for a moment, I thought this was some kind of cruel joke. The building I stood for was old, only two stories, and the door with the correct address on it merely said, and I'm not kidding here, the KT School of Interpretive Dance. KT. Cross a tlack. A dance instructor? My sensei, the one who was going to teach me one of the deadliest martial arts known to my kind. A dance instructor? Well, I supposed everyone had to make a living. So I pushed the door open and went inside. The foyer consisted of little more than a staircase that took me up to the second level. Once I was there, I made my way down a small hallway till I came to yet another door, this one bearing the same logo as the one outside. I pressed my ear to the door, half expecting to hear the muffled sounds of a piano or some other instrument, but only silence greeted me. So with a deep breath and an exhale, I pushed open the door. The room was huge. There was no other way to describe it. Huge and empty. From the looks of it, this one room took up half the building's second floor. I could see several windows along the far wall, but almost all of them were blacked out using transparent technology. With the flick of a switch, a window could go from crystal clear to completely opaque in moments. I took a few steps into the room, the floor made of highly polished hardwood. I had to admit, it certainly looked like a dance studio, but it could also pass for a war hall if it had a few little additions to it. You're early. 
The voice came from behind me, and I spun around almost too quickly towards it. Krasa was standing there, dressed pretty much like a normal person. <laughs> I guess only having seen him in the fur, the fact that he was wearing any kind of clothing was a bit... odd. My ID card gave me this. I know, he interrupted. It was designed to do so once you found employment. He began walking towards me. Your card. It wasn't a request. I quickly fished the card out of my pocket and handed it to him. He examined it for a moment, then his left ear twitched slightly. The docks, he said. An interesting choice for one as young as you. He handed the card back. You do realize that your days are not set, he said. The docks are in motion all hours of the day and night, and you will see all of those hours at some point. I know, I said. Unless it means compromising my training. I I'll quit if I... All he did was hold up his hand, and I stopped talking immediately. It never ceased to amaze me at the impact a mere gesture from him had on me. The retreats will need some fine-tuning, he said. But I'm sure we will arrive at a suitable compromise. When do you report for your first day? Uh, tomorrow morning, 0630, I said. Very well. When you are finished there, you will come here and your training will begin. I swallowed hard. Although this was the moment I'd been waiting for, this was the news I'd been wanting to hear since our first meeting, I was still terrified. Perhaps it was those near-instinctive fears that one's religion instills when it comes to the unknown, but all those thoughts of the dark one and the deal began to surface. Maybe it was because of the finality of it all. Once I started down that path, I knew there'd be no looking back. Whether I eventually regained my honor or not, I would always be a Lautari. I'll be here, I said. By agreeing to it, the fear seemed to somewhat fade. Cowardice would do me no good under his tutelage, so it was best to deal with it at the outset rather than let it fester inside. No, I knew I wanted this. I wanted that training. And with that agreement, I swore to myself that someday I would master the art of the man-beasts no matter the cost. Thanks to some research into my ID card, I found a set of geographic coordinates that corresponded to where I'd first summoned a transit shuttle. I used them as a destination on my trip out of the city, and soon found myself right back where I'd started that morning. It almost felt as though I'd come full circle, and I was returning to my dwelling better than when I'd left. I walked rather briskly, more than anxious to reach the tree line just ahead. It was hard not to break into a run as my mind recalled the last open field I'd been in and what happened that night. Still, I managed to restrain myself and walk normally, though when I finally did melt into the forest, I felt immensely relieved. Once the fear of being seen was gone, it was as if someone pulled a veil off my head and I was seeing my surroundings for the first time. Maybe it was the fact that I was finally moving forward with this somewhat shattered life, but all around me the forest just seemed to come alive. The trees all around me were beginning to show some green, and the air was thick with the scent of sap and earth. My whiskers seemed to come alive too, as if the very pulse of the planet was somehow radiating through me. I rode this feeling for as long as I could, because the moment I reached the clearing where my dwelling stood, the feeling began to fade. 
It stood there, reminding me of the reality of my situation, and that while I could temporarily fool myself into thinking I was free, I was, in fact, still a prisoner, still an exile, still a target. I said nothing as I opened the door, and only barely noticed that the cougar was still there. She whipped her head around at me and snarled for a moment, but as soon as she recognized me, her features seemed to relax. Well, if you can call going from a warning snarl to her wonderfully abrasive self relaxing. Took your sweet time getting back, she said. I refused to rise to the bait as I unslung my knapsack and placed it on the floor. I knelt and opened it, retrieving all I'd purchased that day, including the mat and the blankets. This seemed to intrigue her. So, she said, you just had a feeling I'd still be here? Again, I said nothing. I simply refused to rise to the bait and get into a shouting match with her. My friend Max always said that life was too short, and to waste it on trivial things was as criminal a thing as it was stupid. Besides, once the cougar was well, she'd be on her way, and I'd never have to listen to her again. So why stress out over it? And at the same time, I'd have the satisfaction of knowing that I helped someone who was in trouble. So in my book, that was a win-win situation. So instead of starting a shouting match, I merely retrieved one of each flavor of the camp meals I'd purchased and showed them to her. Take your pick, I said. You're probably hungry. Despite trying to appear neutral and composed, I couldn't help but smirk as I saw the surprised look on her face. Actually, it was more a combination of surprised and deflated, as though she'd been bracing for a fight only to find it not there. I quickly shifted the smirk into something a little bit kinder. It wasn't that life was too short to waste it on fighting, it was the fact that I just didn't want to fight. I had no quarrel with her, and her only issue with me seemed to be... Just what, exactly? She picked one of the meals I'd presented to her and activated the self-heating unit. I took a different flavor and did the same, and before long we were dining quietly. I had to admit, the meal was nothing compared to some of the feasts mother and her servants had prepared back home, but as hungry as I was, it more than hit the spot. Is it true what you said? she asked. I stopped eating and looked up at her. About this fever. Is it fatal? I nodded. Untreated, I hear, it can be rather gruesome, I said. Who taught you how to make the medicine? My grandfather. He... He showed me how nature can provide for just about everything. She snorted. Was your grandfather in exile too? No, I said. He just took my sister and I aside one day and taught us about different plants and their uses. Nothing formal. I didn't know if what she said had been an attempt at an insult, but I left that particular gauntlet where it lay. Okay, she said. If that's the case, then what else did he teach you? As calmly as I could, I ran through no less than two dozen indigenous plants in the Kerala Valley, including their uses, benefits, and how to use them in different types of natural remedies. I then went on to tell her about what fruits in the forest were edible, which were poisonous, and which could be used for things like dyes or other forms of coloring. She said nothing, and instead merely rose up. She walked stiffly over to the bucket containing the tokia mixture and took a cupful of it. She swallowed it down with a scowl before returning to where she'd been. How long do I have to take this? she asked. 
Twice a day for two weeks, I said. That'll give your body enough time to develop an effective resistance to the fever. I made a mental note to check the place where I'd picked those leaves, just to make sure there were enough of them to make more medicine if needed. Two weeks, she sighed. Oh well, could be worse, I guess. Still with the insults, though for the most part the fire that had been in her words earlier was all but gone. Whatever animosity she'd had towards me seemed to be fading. I said nothing, and instead unrolled the new mat and put one of the blankets beside it. I took the other one and handed it to the cougar, who took it and simply nodded her thanks. I saw her spread the blanket out before laying back down. She yawned twice, and I could see her eyes straining to stay open. The medicine must have had a sedative effect on people, something Grandfather didn't tell me. It was probably for the best, though, since the body heals best when it's at rest. She tried to fight the oncoming sleep, but eventually the medicine won out and her eyes closed. And just like the night before, I noticed again how, well, beautiful she was when she wasn't awake. There was a softness to her, a kindness that seemed to just radiate from her when her attitude wasn't blocking it. Grandmother used to say that there were two ways you could tell the nature of one's soul. The first was by the eyes, and when that failed, the other was when they slept. Freed from the incessant control of the conscious mind, the sleeping form always reverts back to its natural state, its real state. And if that was true, then this cougar's tough exterior was little more than a show, or perhaps a defense mechanism. I figured, given her current situation, that it was the latter. I mean, these days, no one except the completely destitute contracted Theris fever. So I could only imagine what kind of hell she'd been through. Compared to her, my own time as an exile had been pretty easy so far. And if that was the case, if the past while had been an absolute hell for her, maybe there was hope. Maybe by being here. By getting better by being shown kindness. She'd let that kinder, gentler self come out and no longer be covered by that whole tough bitch facade. I made up my mind there and then to try and do that for her. To try and make her see that maybe there's still hope in this world for people like us. It was a long shot, sure, and maybe she was already too far gone. But still, I had to try, didn't I? Wasn't the willingness to try and better oneself akin to not giving up or giving in? I didn't know about her, but I wasn't just ready to roll over and give up on myself just yet. I'd already gotten a new name, a new job, and soon I was going to start my journey to becoming a Lautari. If I could give just a fraction of that determination back to her, just to show her that her life wasn't over, then I'd consider the job done. I finally started to feel tired myself and got myself ready for bed. In the dying firelight, I looked over at the sleeping cougar and smiled. I was looking forward to meeting the real her once the rough exterior of her personality had been worn away. Granted, all my optimism was probably for naught, but if it helped me fill in the dead spaces of what my life was about to become, then I welcomed the challenge. I'm glad you decided to stay, I said just barely above a whisper. She coughed and snorted in reply. Thanks for listening to Outcast. 
a podcast novel written and read by Chris Vincent. For more information on the show, please visit the show's website at outcastnovel.podshow.com. To leave some feedback on the show, please contact me by email at outcastnovel at gmail.com, or you can call the voicemail line at 206-666-2912. Again, that's 206-666-2912. Theme music is provided by Droom and can be found on the Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. And again, thanks for listening.